ever listeners and welcome to episode 6 of Take It Black which I am calling Revolutionary Songs. I'm sailing solo for this episode because recently I went to Omadelaide for the four day festival of world music and I spoke with some amazing artists and organisers and I want to share those conversations with you and hopefully bring a little taste of WOMAD to you because not everybody is able to make it to the festival each year, and in fact, it was my first Woe Madelaide. I used to listen to Radio National in the late 90s and early 2000s, usually with presenter Lucky Oceans broadcasting from the festival for his radio show, and my imagination used to soar to the rhythms of Baba Mal and Famakuti. Of course, the festival has had strong First Nations representation too, almost from the outset. Over the years, we've seen Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legends, such as Jimmy Little, Kev Carmody, Archie Roach and Ruby Hunter, Titus, Coloured Stone, Yotha Yindi, the Pigram Brothers, Frank Yammer, Christine Arnu, the Bungara Dance Company, Yongu Dancers, Lardle Dancers, there was Emma Donovan, and more recently, Radical Sun, AB Original, Yerimal, Shelley Morris, Electric Fields, and this year saw Briggs return to headline Sunday night, plus sets by Yolunji woman Deline Briscoe, William Barton brought his dig along, a cameo by Robbie Thorpe, there was Spinifex Gum, who were very popular, and of course a welcome and workshops by the Takatina Dancers, local Ghana dance group. One standout performance for me was on Monday afternoon when Deline Briscoe was joined on stage by one of my countrywomen in Emma Donovan, to start her set with this.
goosebumps up the backs of my legs. There were other sets that did that too. General Levy, for starters, set the opening night of the festival alight with a performance that had thousands dancing in a frenzy. It was wild, and every time the energy dipped just a little bit, the general would wind it all up again, running wildly on the spot with his high knee lifts, and the crowd would be off again, shaking every little thing like crazy. One of the best festival experiences that I've ever been part of. As for the festival itself, it again brought over 95,000 people through the gates into Adelaide's Botanic Park. And it saw artists from over 30 countries and brought $18 million into the local economy. I caught up with festival director Ian Scobie to see if he was as happy with the way the festival was rolling out as everybody else on site seemed to be. It's been fabulous. We've had the most fantastic four days. Not over yet, but yeah, it's been really terrific. It's a record year for us, record box office, record attendances, just wonderful. I read that you've had 90,000 people through the gate. Yeah, I think probably more than that, you know, kind of 97, something like that, but who's counting? And it's a festival that brings quite a bit into the local economy. Can you tell us a bit about yeah, that? It does, well, well uh, around 40, on, on our surveys from last year, uh, about 45% of our audience comes from interstate uh, and that generated last year about 16.5 million for the state in terms of tourism revenue. So yeah, it's a real positive for the economy. And this year's festival compared with other years, how does it rate? Well, I'd have to say from an organiser's point of view, you know, it's, it's absolutely set a new benchmark with levels of sound and production and the artist bill that we've had, um, responses from audiences, and we've actually been blessed with some of the best weather, I have to say. Some years it's been very, very hot and challenging for audiences. This year, summer seems to have, you know, calmed down a bit earlier, so it's just been lovely, 25, 28. Uh, the park's lush and green, so the audiences are out there just loving it. And in terms of the demographic of the audience, it seems like a great festival for families. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when the festival began in 1992, we said, you know, children under 12 could be brought free with their, with their parents. And so, you know, some of those kids are bringing their kids now. And it's fantastic for young children to be exposed to live performance. And, and it's a sociable, friendly family atmosphere. And, uh, you know, what's not to like? It's, it's lovely. In terms of inclusion of First Nations cultures, has that been a conscious effort on your part? Oh, ab absolutely. You know, we're, we've been um, thrilled to present some of the country's leading Indigenous artists, Archie Roach and Yachty Indy, and you know, and this year, Deline Briscoe, Briggs, um, and uh, everyone actually is still thrilled and talking about the girls in Spinifex gum. I mean, there's such wonderfully empowered not only young women but indigenous women it's just such a positive story and thrilling for artists from all over the world i had some artists from france come over and just said spinifex gum the most amazing thing i've ever seen you know so it it is just fabulous to have this platform to show our first nations people and uh it as the incredible performers they are but also, you know, it, it, it's just such a positive thing and uh, that's what we need. Take it flat. Now, the festival was opened again this year by the Takatina Dance Group, which is led by Jamie Goldsmith these days. And I spent a bit of time yarning with Jamie over the four days 
and I can tell you he is a fella that gets funnier and funnier the later it gets. So on Monday I got in early and asked him about what the festival offers to Takatina and to the Kerner Mob. Worm Adelaide's a good platform for us to show the wider community about who we are and, and the knowledge that we've had for a long time and, and what we have to share with, with the people. A lot, of, a lot of what people see about us on the mainstream um, media is um, not always the best side of us, but um, this is our way to tell our story ourselves. I, I started coming to WOMAD um, when I was young, really young. Uh, we've been doing the opening here for over 20 years and um, I started coming here with my father um, who was, had a strong connection with WOM Adelaide and then um, that's how I got involved with WOM Adelaide and this year for the first time my two children got up and danced with us so that's, that's been um, my highlight is um, seeing the next generation step up and, and, and be a part of that as well. Now I was hanging out in the backstage area over there on the Saturday night when I spotted Robbie Thorpe sitting down hunched over a notebook writing something. So I sung out, Robbie! And it turned out that he was there to perform as part of the Public Opinion Afro Orchestra. Now Robbie is a Gunai Kurnai man from what is now Eastern Victoria, and he lives in Melbourne and is a living legend in terms of Aboriginal rights activism. If you've heard of the Stolen Wealth Games, that was Robbie. But there's been a couple other things too. Anyway, V Belling, who is one of the key organisers behind the Public Opinion Afro Orchestra, had reached out and got Robbie involved in the 19-piece group. 19-piece plus guests, I should add. Well, I caught their first set and was blown away by the crowd's enthusiasm. There were thousands dancing around in front of the stage area. So afterwards, I caught up with the Afro Orchestra's hype man, MC 16 aka Aaron Stephanus, V and Robbie, and we quickly got around to talking about protest music and revolutionary songs. Here's V, firstly, telling me a bit about the group, its backstory, and what it stands for. Well, we're uh, about 12 years old. Um, it's our second time to WOMAD. We did this about 10 years ago. Um, we're an Afrobeat band. We are uh, African diaspora. Um, we uh, play Afrobeat. And um, uh, we also are interested in presenting protest music. We were um, interested in some anti-colonial ideas and uh, where the maybe the anti-colonial message of Africa intersects with um, the struggle in Australia. So this is Afrobeat music which is heavily or originated by uh, Fela Kuti from Nigeria and so we take that so we take that idea of uh, protest and speaking about the social situation of where we are and then turning that into into music because um you know we can dance but if you don't have a brain you can't move your feet so you know we try and really put that together and that's the idea of the band really and that was mc 16 so how did robbie turn up in the group surprisingly i was asked to be a part of the band um i think thanks to V, who listens to my radio program, I think. Um, he invited me to be a part of the band. I do a, a, a bit of an acknowledgement when we go to certain places like here. And I, I uh, play a part of the uh, naming and blaming song, do a little piece in that as well. I asked MC16 about the importance of collaboration between black and black communities in terms of protest and revolution in our music. 
Well, I feel like it's very important in terms of the cultural collaboration and then also like the, the linking of the, the struggle and then the understanding and the fight to get out of the struggle. I feel like, you know, indigenous people come from everywhere, but then for us to all link together and really connect and, you know, fight the, the, the oppressor and break the shackles and break that oppression you know, the, the more heads that link together to work out how to do that, the better. And, and there's no better way to, than to do that in an orchestra of 50 plus people. <laughs> a lot of people in the world don't realise this is a colonised land. And um, you know, as we share our stories, we understand each other and we've got to come from the same place. Take it flat. Talking about revolutionary music, I got to have a sit down with Mr. Berlicu Leon Timor a former Timor-Leste guerrilla fighter and a songman who performed with fellow freedom fighter Jose Faria in Mubara, Timor. And I hope I got that pronunciation right. The group performs the music of the East Timor resistance during its struggle against the colonial occupation of their lands by Indonesia. Our song is all about storytelling, um, especially with uh, Mount how he got involved with the struggle. He was in a military and uh, he was in a, in a jungle, uh, in an armed wing of uh, Timor-Leste resistance. And uh, it's all about his, his story, how he constructed music and how he did the music. So that's why something that I wish him can talk more about his music and yeah. uh, how he did it and being in a, in a war zone. Mm. And um, yeah. But what are some of those struggles that you've faced in bringing the sorts of music that you, 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 you play on stage? It's a type of luta that Monser enfrenta tempo be punumian. We during the struggle, as you know, in Timor-Leste, went for like 24 years with armed resistance, and um, the Indonesians very powerful, and the music is also play a very important part of that struggle, uh, the war as a healing process or as a how to uh, promote the struggle through, uh, through music and it's such an important tool. Yep. So it provided some sort of uh, resistance in itself and resilience? Uh, what the music was for for uh, poder and resistance? Yes, exactly. The music has influenced me. Yeah, music was a tool that uh, inspired us in order to, um, you know, how to keep us with that strength, gave us a lot of strength in order to fight. And how important is storytelling for conveying our histories? Qual é a importância sobre contar mal na história? Bem, há um envolvimento durante o tempo fundo, né? E a resistência, né? Vai, né? Carquilha de luta sobre a Indonésia, com militares de Indonésia, mas vê, e há momentos valo que quando o tempo livre, ralamos música. Yes, um, during the time, during the fight, it's a lot of fight, and in between fights, we basically do nothing, and uh, this is when we write songs, you know, in order to, to give them more encouragement. For the struggle there. Yeah. Yeah. 
is there a lot of solidarity between the sorts of colonial struggles that you guys have faced and what you know about First Nations people here in Australia? Yeah, as support Colonial. Yeah, Yes, uh, there's a lot of solidarity, like politically, uh, out here, there's a lot of support from uh, the grassroots level, but not military level, the right? uh, military is just have to survive on your own. The building group is formed by the French Tolu, the French Armada, the French Armada, the French Clashina, the Zephyria, the Sirna here, the French Exterior, the French Exterior, the French Exterior, the French Group. In the Timor struggle, we have three com very important components. We have the arm wing, and we have the um, underground movement, like uh, which is represented by Zair Faria. The, uh, and myself, where I was an activist for a long, long time, uh, trying to do the, all the playing music as much as I can, so that we can bring the, the people together for um, you know uh, social movement at the time. So. Um, so those three components are very, very important. And we are glad that we managed to assemble the band based on those three components. Take it black. Now with the recent emergence of so many First Nations music artists and performers, it's encouraging to see that APRA MCOS has recently appointed a new national manager for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Music Office. And that person is Leah Flanagan. Naturally, Leah was at Woe Adelaide and not for the first time either. As many of you listeners would know, Leah is a renowned singer-songwriter in her own right. And if you're listening and you don't know of her, finish listening to this episode of Take It Black and then go straight to looking her up. Leah has played alongside the likes of Sinead O'Connor, Paul Kelly, John Cale, Gurumul, Deborah Conway, those sorts of household names. I asked Leah what her role at APRA AMCOS involved. It's a huge role. It's um, a newly created role within APRA AMCOS, which is Australia's royalty collecting society for, um, for songwriters and composers. Um, and within that organisation, they've got the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Music Office. And part of my new role there is to work with um, a lot of the managers at APRA, as well as the music industry, to kind of advocate for more opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander musicians within the, the wider music industry. How important is the representation and why isn't it up to the level where it should be at the moment? Well, yeah, there's been a lot of barriers for our artists, you know, they're, they're always and quite often celebrated performers, but behind the scenes there's still a lack of management, you know, Aboriginal owned and operated labels, um, working within the worlds of publishing and even publicity and marketing. So even though APRA AMCOS I do work with primarily songwriters and composers, it's also educating that those members and those, those writers that can also have sustainable careers in other sectors of the music industry while supporting their own craft. So, and so often those positions, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists haven't been able to achieve, you know, up to that kind of higher level of, um, of industry and so part of my role is to really advocate, get in there and also educate the music industry that we do have skilled people working within our sector and um, we just need, they just need to start employing them. 
we need a blacker <laughs> footprint, don't we, in the industry? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Now, there seems to be a bit of a surge of First Nations artists emerging on the scene. That would be something that you would be aware of. Why do you think that is? I think with technology, it's made it easier for people to record at home. It takes out the cost factor of making records. Um, being able to put it up online through digital platforms has made people made it easy for people to get their music out as well. So you're seeing, you know, um, a wave of like these new younger artists that are at home, you know, making their beats and and you know they they're all savvy on you know how to make film clips and and how to kind of put the art together. So they're doing that and they're doing it really really well. So it's now trying to get the other side of the music industry to kind of. Um, support the industry around them so we have more um, um, indigenous owned and operated businesses within the music sector that can also support the artists that they're working with because at the end of the day we also want to be um, we want to make the music industry understand that the the protocols and the importance of, um, of um, and the issues that our artists um, have as, as people of culture and when they're putting their music into a commercial space like making sure that their culture is protected and that the artist doesn't feel compromised um, in, um, through this process so yeah. Now as you said all these artists are just pumping their content out through social media onto these platforms what should they be doing to make sure that um, they're getting paid? <laughs> Well, with my job with APRA, I always say make sure you get in contact with me and my colleague at APRA AMCOS, Donna Woods, who's based in the Brisbane office. I'm based in the Darwin office. But you can contact APRA and make sure you register your songs. Or if you want to learn about copyright, always feel free to get in contact with us because um, if you're a creator, that is where a majority of your income can come from. So um, if you can educate yourself um, to understand how copyright can work to your advantage um, and put you in control of your art and you, the, the music that you're putting out into the world. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty powerf powerful thing and a pretty powerful position that um, you can set yourself up as, as, as an artist when, you know, working within the music, the wider music industry. So. Yeah, there's only so long you can do it for nothing, eh? So you've got to get smart, you fellas. As far as festivals go, would this be in, does this take the top or what, what are we going to you know, put you on the spot here? Oh, I, yeah, it's always, it's definitely one of my favourites. I've um, been here as an artist and I've, I've also worked here and it's just, and as a punter, I always love coming to this festival as a punter. It's great for kids and for families and it's really, one. I, I have a really soft spot for this festival because it's a way of educating younger kids about quality music and teaching them how to go out and see live music so you know as much as there are other festivals that I love as well there's just that element that this festival has that not a great deal of other festivals across the country have either and I feel they program indigenous content very well. Take it black. Well that was Woe Madelaide and it was pretty special and as I record this it could be one of the last mass gatherings for a little while with all of this COVID-19 shutting down our big events for the foreseeable future. Thank you for joining me for episode six of Take It Black. And don't forget to keep the conversation going by using hashtag Take It Black and throwing us a follow on Twitter. And remember to subscribe to Take It Black. 
on your favourite podcasting app so that you don't miss episode 7, which will see my regular co-host Ray Johnson return. In fact, I might even title the episode The Return of Ray. But until then, remember to wash your hands every 30 seconds for 30 seconds, and always take it black. Always love, always love it.